Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. As a listener to this podcast, how would you like a free case of craft beer? Head over to www.beer52.com forward slash HuffPost to pick up yours. On Commons People this week... Chaos reigns in Westminster. Of course I'm sad about it. I didn't get into politics for this chaos, this fiasco. The Brexit endgame approaches. Tonight we have a choice. We can remove the threat of an imminent no-deal exit hanging over our economy. But somehow Theresa May's deal, if not her voice, lives on. I may, I may not have my own voice, but I do understand the voice of the country. They want... Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh. Um, joining me this week is Paul Wall. Hi Arj. Alan Menon from Hi, the UK and a Changing Europe Think Tank. Henry Newman from the Open Europe Think Tank. Hello. And Labour MP Stephen Kinnock. Hello, hi. Hi everyone. Bumper edition this week and a chaotic week for Brexit. So it's been a truly crazy week in which the Prime Minister has suffered a humiliating hat-trick of Brexit defeats. Um, Here's what Scottish First Minister Nicola Sturgeon thinks about it. Uh, Yes, but the conventional rules of politics are not applying right now. If they were, I think she would be out of office. I think her whole government would be out of office. You know, there's no point in being anything other than blunt about this. The Prime Minister has presided over the biggest failure of politics, negotiation, diplomacy, governance of our lifetimes. So, Paul, just how bad has this week been for the Prime Minister? Um, it's hard to put it in context, but when you've had the sort of the, the fourth largest defeat of any prime minister in history, which she had this week, 149 defeat on her, uh, her second go at her Brexit plan, um, then you sort of lose all sense of sort of context in a strange way. Yeah, it's been a terrible week, but not just because of that. It's because the cabinet seems to have been sort of in revolt. Um, the whipping, again, has been proved to be a total disaster. Um, and, and on every turn, when it comes to even the Attorney General having this big gamble on the idea that somehow you could turn Brexit into a, a legal question rather than a political one, she gambled on that, and again, the roll of the dice didn't go her way. Um, she's been out for and outthought, I think that's the really important thing, by her key opponents. And the opponents are the ERG, who are hugely disciplined. Their whipping is so much better than the government's. Labour's whipping this week was incredibly disciplined. Only three people rebelled one of whom was Caroline Flint, who was the extra name the government got. So she cost £1.6 when it came to small towns, you might say, on her own, <laughs> uh, which is a, a better return than even the DUP. So in terms of just being out-fought and out-thought, I think she's had a, a disastrous week, and we'll find out more whether or not it's, she's pulled it round later on tonight. I don't agree. I actually think that 
of course, there's a lot of you know, we're experiencing the paroxysms of Brexit drama in Westminster. But there's another way of looking at this, which is she hasn't had a majority ever since she lost that general election back in June 2017. This was coming for absolutely ages. And of course, she didn't win, uh, but she did substantially change the size of the defeat uh, on Tuesday. She convinced you said the ELG had a very tight whipping operation. That's broadly true, but she did convince some quite key Brexiteers to move across. Above all, most importantly, David Davis, a man who resigned over her Brexit policy, is now backing her deal. Now, you may not think it's perfect, but he thinks it's a better option than anything else. Zach Goldsmith, former Tory mayoral candidate for London. His father founded a referendum party dedicated to leaving the EU. He's backing the deal. Nadine Doris, various other MPs. I think this, that Philip has... Davis in the that, this, this is starting to shift... Uh, I think clearly she's not home dry. As you said, she didn't get at Strasbourg quite as much as, as perhaps some had hoped on the Eurosceptic side. But as the options narrow further and further, and I think that the defeat yesterday, you could argue, played to her advantage because it pointed very clearly to something that had seemed fundamentally obvious for absolutely ages, that Parliament would get in the way of a no deal. If you knock out a no deal, what happens next? You've got to choose between no Brexit and her deal. This summarises in a nutshell how weird our times are, because a defeat of 149 can convincingly be portrayed as progress. <laughs> it's just weird. It's progress from 230. Yeah. What do you make of that, yeah. Stephen? I, I mean, I, I think that the other thing that has to be factored in here is the personal factor. And when you have a Prime Minister whose authority has been completely shredded, um, it means that she has a bit of leverage here and there in her party, but she's not the Heineken Prime Minister. She cannot reach the parts that she needs to reach. There are clearly people who have now completely lost faith and confidence in her and it's become an institutional problem bound up with a personal problem. And when you have those two factors combined, I think it becomes extremely difficult to get your your deal over the line because it's become personal. I mean, there's a lot of truth in that. But, and Henry's got a point, which is that the momentum might be in her favour now. You can see if there was a meaningful vote, three, the numbers would come down again. I personally don't think they're going to come down enough for a victory because there are a hardcore of people on the Tory side, not just, you know, Marc Francois and um, Steve Baker, but a few others who are actually digging in. And they're not counterbalanced by people on the Labour side. This is the point about Labour's discipline, Labour's whipping. Yeah, there might be more people from the Labour side who actually defect next time, but it's very difficult. But, but well, what have they been st- offered that's new? Well, I think there's, a, like I think there's, some, there's some ways. That, so clearly the Prime Minister has been absolutely catastrophically useless at reaching across Parliament from the very beginning, but particularly after the uh, general election setback. But I think there's a, there's a series of things that she can now do to help, as the options narrow, that will make a material difference. One... Give something clear to the DUP on the Stormont lock. They are obsessed with paragraph 50 to be techie of the December joint report in 2017. That is a domestic UK concern that you can get the EU to put a nice rubber stamp on. It's no further change from the EU, but that is very important to them. I think you could do that and get the DUP on board. Second offer a free vote her party the Tories are treating every vote as a free vote anyway so what difference does it make and if you do that which is how we went into the EU with our first meaningful vote back in the 70s Tories did a free vote to encourage Labour rebels to move across and that worked back in the 70s I think that can make a bit of a difference and thirdly very unfairly because if she does get anywhere close to delivering this deal she will be the comeback queen but she's got to set out a timetable for her departure and if she does that, sorry, just to finish finally, that picks up Stephen's point that the opposition on her side is personal as well as political and substantive. So if she, Tories on, back, on the backbenches 
feel desperately that whatever side of the leave remain divide they're on, they want somebody else to take forward the next phase of the Brexit negotiations. And that's not what my friends in government think, and they will be upset with me saying it, but it's quite clear that that would make a very, very big difference to the size of the opposition on the Tory backbenchers. Sorry, Adam. I'll just add a couple of things. One on the Labour MPs. Surely what makes the Labour MPs defect if they do is the fact they think it's going to win. Yes. I mean, it's nothing substantive. It's if they think it'll get over the line, they might change sides. And the second thing is, I think there are procedural things she can offer as well, whether it comes to binding votes on the mandate for the trade negotiations or... That's Stuff the sort like of thing that Mr. Around, would like, I yeah, think. more things, control for no, Labour. No, control over the, the actual trade deal rather yeah. than the withdrawal agreement, because people are starting to realise that actually there are two separate debates here that aren't necessarily both for now, and the one about the future is a separate one. And she can make promises about the future, I think, in terms of parliamentary process that might buy her a few votes, and it might boil down to a few votes in the end. Yeah. That is a fundamental point about Labour MPs. They will not go through the division lobby with the Tories when they can see it's got no chance of winning because that's a futile gesture. I know of many, many uh, Labour MPs who are minded to vote for the Prime Minister's deal, but they're not going to take the flack How from many their own constituency Labour parties. Uh, very difficult to put a number on it. I would certainly say it's in the tens. It's not that many. It's not that yeah. many that I've spoken to. Tens but is but I, I, I'm not, I'm not speaking to, you know, I don't have a spreadsheet on this. I, it's just who you really? happen to be discussing. Get a spreadsheet uh, going. Yeah. Yeah. I, have, I have plenty of other spreadsheets. But I don't have <laughs> okay, that we'll hear spreadsheet. But I've been in meetings with Labour colleagues where they've said they're minded to support the deal, but it's absolutely pointless when you can see it's going to get obliterated by... The, so why dig the Tories out of that hole? It's just yeah, a futile exactly. gesture. You now, want to do it once, don't you? Yeah, you, you, if, when you're going to do it, you, you do it when it's clearly going to make a difference, not when it's a futile gesture. Uh, Theresa May, another tactic she's taken is to threaten uh, a long bre- uh, Article 50 delay if her deal doesn't pass. You know, could that actually win Labour MPs and Tory Brexiteers behind her deal? I don't know. What do you think, Stephen? I mean, I, I, I mean, I think the there's this sort of constant threat of a longer extension, but. Um, as always in this Brexit process, British politicians tend to forget the views of a rather important stakeholder, which is known as the European Union. And the European Union has made it absolutely clear that if we're going to extend beyond the 30th of June, we have to participate in European parliamentary elections. And and because I think 99% of the MPs in this place are horrified by that thought, um, people will not buy into the idea of extending beyond the 30th of June, uh, because they just simply cannot countenance the idea of having European parliamentary elections. Mm. I think Keir Starmer just said something interesting on the floor of the House. He said that in, he knows Europe backwards, and he says that there are three different opinions swirling around in Europe about what we do um, when it comes to a, an extension, and particularly whether or not there is going to be a need to have any European elections. Three different views, one of which which sounds a bit curveball, but he says there is one opinion which suggests that actually we don't need any European elections whatsoever and a, a protocol could be added to give us an opt-out effectively mm. um, while we do this extension. It sounds far-fetched, but I don't know if it's going to fly, um, but we'll see. The protocol added to what? Lisbon, I don't, presumably. But I imagine... To the treaties. To the treaties, yeah. To the treaties. At that point, it, everyone opens it, up the treaties. Well, again, it, sounds it, says. it sounds bizarre, but you know, he's, he's, he was making clear he's heard that as one of three legal opinions. 
I just think that's slightly self-serving. I think that the fascinating thing at the moment is the absence of Labour, from, the Labour front bench from this whole political drama. In normal times, fourth biggest defeat in history on Tuesday, you'd think the Labour front bench would be front and centre of this. But the defeat on the government yesterday was brought about by a, by Yvette Cooper, a Labour backbencher. Jeremy Corbyn forgot to mention what's supposed to be the central policy of the Labour Party, a second referendum, after the defeat on Tuesday night. It's just completely extraordinary, the world that we're in. But we have this broader unreality, this sort of through-the-looking-glass madness, where the Labour Party's official position, but also the official, also the position of some uh, backbenchers who might uh, vote for the deal, is that they are happy with all the legally binding bits of the divorce agreement, but they are worried about the future declaration, which is all non-binding and declaratory, and by the way, could be changed by any future government at any point. We could negotiate an agreement like Canada's, and a future government in, say, 2027, led by Stephen Kinnock, could bring us into a totally different relationship with Europe by agreement. And that could happen for the rest of time, because we're never going to stop talking about our relationship with the EU. I I think that, I, I, I take Henry's point on that, but I, I also do think that politically binding in this case would be with a capital P and a capital B. Because what the European Union will do is say, you've been through this incredibly painful process, we've changed the political declaration, we've got it over the line for what I hope would be a common market 2.0 type of Brexit. The moment you then, during the transition period, start trying to shift the goalposts and turn it into something else, even if Jacob Rees-Mogg is Prime Minister, we will simply walk away and it'll be no deal. And what it will do is buy us a bit more time to prepare for no deal. So I think with best endeavours, with uh, duty of sincere cooperation, with the reality that given what we've been through, the shift in the political declaration, yes, in de facto it's politically binding um, only and not legally binding, I think the reality is uh, that it would be, um, it would be a political straitjacket. Whether you're toasting or commiserating the latest Brexit position this weekend, why not do it with Beer 52's Rugby Nation case of craft beers from the countries involved in the Six Nations? As a listener, you can get a free case of craft beer by going to www.beer52.com forward slash HuffPost, where you can also pick your favourite tipple. Just head to www.beer52.com forward slash HuffPost. Now, we're sort of touching on, on, on this idea of indicative votes here and different options, and obviously the common market 2.0 option that you back, Stephen, is part of the future relationship. Let's just hear David Liddington in the House just a couple of hours ago offering indicative votes if the deal is voted down. We would face the prospect of having to seek a longer extension, and what I said earlier is that in such a scenario where we were going into the European Council um, without approval for the deal on the table, then the Government's commitment is that we would, in the two weeks following the European Council, consult through the usual channels with other parties, and we would uh, work to uh, provide a a process uh, by which the House could form a majority uh, on how to take things Forward. So, Paul, we could see MPs voting on alternatives as soon as 
The week after next? The week after next, if the Hillary Benn Amendment goes through, and that's not certain at all. But if it does, um, then it could get interesting in a couple of weeks' time. The reason that it's interesting, though, most of all, in my opinion, is that it will force this choice that the PM actually wants to force on Parliament, and which David Liddington does. I mean, effectively, all of us want to force a choice at some point. And I think that then it becomes really difficult for the Labour Party, because... Labour's policy, if you look at its conference policy, yes, it's got a people's vote in there, but also its policy is for a permanent customs union. And that's why it feeds into to Stephen's argument, which is just imagine there's a series of indicative votes. Now, they're not sequential, these indicative votes. They're, they're standalone, I think. That's what my understanding of this is. The whole point of it is that one doesn't knock out another. If you've got them all with equal status, these votes, what's Labour's position going to be on whipping each of them? Is it going to whip for a people's vote? And then you have a customs union or common market two point five and whip for that. And if it does, and if both of those pass, then what? I mean, just can, can you imagine the, also, the chaos? Of, but also, but imagine the, if both fail. Yeah. Then what? But also, the policy isn't clearly for a customs union. That's another area of this bizarre world. So Labour in favour of a customs union where we don't harmonise on state aid and we do get a say over trade and is permanent. Well, what does that mean? And how does that differ from the customs union, common customs territory in the backstop of the existing deal? It's all very bizarre. I mean, we've got these other options like common market 2.0. That's just a slogan, not anything that's actually been agreed with the EU. And we're talking about the current chaos in Parliament... Yes, it's bad. But imagine what it looks like if there is literally no government in charge rather than a government struggling to maintain some sort of authority. I was talking to Alistair Campbell yesterday and he was just saying that however bad you think it is now, that would be a different level of chaos if you put MPs without any clear whipping operation in charge of deciding what could happen. And we could get a big majority coalescing around something that is just a unicorn, that has no relationship with actually what is negotiable with the EU. We saw the Mothouse amendment uh, being defeated yesterday, which would have been a... Speaking of unicorns. Speaking yes. of unicorns, right? Something that was a wonderful creation of Conservative Party unity, but had no relationship yeah. to anything that was actually on offer from the EU. That could happen again. And we could have everybody coming together around Common Market 2.0. Lovely idea. May well work. No relationship to anything the EU has actually agreed. Oh, you're going to have to... Well. Stephen, you've been to see Barnier <laughs> yes. at least once. Um, have you talked to him about Common Market 2.0? Zero and what's he said? Absolutely. So um, we, of course, all are familiar with the famous escalator slide of Monsieur Barnier. He said from the start, these are the models that are on option are on offer. Uh, the European Union thinks in models and templates. It has to. It's a very complex, heterogeneous organisation. It needs laws, directives, and treaties, and and models and templates. That's the way it always has been. That's why I, from for the last two and a half years, have been campaigning for a so-called Norway-style exit, because it's a model, and it's the model that works best for the British economy. Um, he uh, made it clear that Norway was always on op- on offer. I mean, in the, when you look at the escalator slide, the flag at the top was the Norwegian one, and it was then Canada, and then Ukraine, and then WTO. So um, it, it's always been on offer from the EU side, and when I pushed him on this, when we met, he said absolutely it was always on offer, but we didn't explore it because of the British Prime Minister's red lines. Uh, so, you know, that's the huge missed and wasted opportunity of this, as Henry rightly said earlier, um, after the 2017 election, the Prime Minister should have reached out and created a national consensus on this, just by the way, as the Irish did far more effectively in this whole uh, process. Mm. So I, I think, I mean, I mean, I think we, one of the things that's been really frustrating throughout this is all these people saying, well, we know what Parliament doesn't want, but we don't know what it wants. That's because we haven't had the opportunity 
to debate these options and express a view. And it's absolutely extraordinary that on this issue of the gravest national significance, where there's clearly been a number of options, a menu, you know, just take Monsieur Barnier's slide, that those options were always on the menu, that our national parliament has not had the opportunity to debate and vote on them. And now we're doing it, but we're doing it in a terrible rush and in a state of crisis. But, you know, better late than never. And, and you may well be right that coming out of this exercise, we end up with more than one thing getting a majority or nothing getting a majority. I don't know. But we don't know until we've tried. And we have to got, test the opinion of the House. We've got deep reservations about corn market 2.0. Well, um, yeah, we've, we've, we've had this argument before. We might as well have it again. I mean, just, I suppose... Anand has deep reservations about everything. That's absolutely true. I've got all sorts of doubts about them at the moment. But assuming you got it, just how politically sustainable do you think Norway would be in this country? I mean, that's one of my fears, is it just wouldn't last politically. And that's because of free movement it would allow. It's because of free movement, movement. it's because of being a rule taker, it's because of having being stuck inside someone else's customs union and the terms of that I suspect won't be quite as rosy as Jeremy Corbyn seems to think. You know, we're going to be more turkey than Corbyn when it comes to uh, customs union. And, you know, the pressure will build up again, won't it? Well, look, I mean, I think... All of these questions come down to trade-offs. And uh, what's clear to me is that um, a big driver of the Leave vote was this the problem of the gravitational pull of Brussels. This sense that uh, the United Kingdom was sucked in to a sort of a vortex of ever closer union. Uh, you'll get dragged into the euro one day, you'll get dragged into a European army, you'll get dragged into uh, an integrated common foreign security policy based on qualified majority voting. Hmm. And that is a to be able to say none of that can possibly happen because we are no longer a member state of the European Union, I think that cuts a lot of ice with the British people. Now, there's a trade-off with it is, but yes, we are in the common market. We are in a hmm. single market which does require some regulatory harmonisation. But are there really that many heinous, terrible, awful rules coming out of Brussels that have caused people to go onto the streets in the last uh, 20 or 30 years and protest against them. I don't think so. So I think it's a, it's a pragmatic compromise with some pros and some cons. Certainly not everybody's perfect option, but it's, it's a compromise. And have you had any nods or winks from Keir Starmer, Stephen, about Common Market 2.0? Well, Nick Bowles and Oliver Letwin and Lucy Powell and I had an excellent meeting with Jeremy Corbyn and his team uh, last week, and it was really positive. They had our is he backing as much as he's backing a second referendum, or is he? I I couldn't possibly comment on the confidential uh, conversations that we had, but but it was uh, an excellent discussion, and uh, you know you had. Uh, Sir Oliver Letwin, a pillar of the establishment, in there in a room with Jeremy and a number of other uh, colleagues from his team who you wouldn't normally see them sitting around the same table. So, you know, people are reaching out. Keir um, is, is in discussions with us, but, you know, he's obviously part of the kind of shadow cabinet position on all of this. Uh, I think we do need to be absolutely clear that the Labour Party's position is we will explore all the options, including potentially a people's vote. Uh, at the end of all of this, but until we've explored all the options. And the other key point we make to Keir is, and to everybody that's campaigning for a people's vote, you can't have a referendum with Remain versus Remain on the ballot paper. It, there has to be a form of leave. Now, if Theresa May's deal is as dead in the water as we think it is, 
Parliament's got to agree on something as a form of Brexit that could then be the counterpoint to remain on a ballot paper. You've got to go, I believe, Stephen, but just before you do, have you been talking to government ministers about your plan and what's the reception? Absolutely. had two meetings with David Lidington and Michael Gove. Um, um, and, you know, uh, again, very positive. You know, I, we made the point, the tragedy of these red lines which made everything so difficult from the start and I have to say they didn't agree with us verbally but their body language seemed to look like they were agreeing with us and um, <clears throat> you know they I think they they're looking for uh, a plan B and that's what this is and uh, the Prime Minister's plan A it seems to me is is you know, the final nail was driven into the coffin. Who knows, she made... I, I just can't see her making up those numbers by Tuesday. Um, and we'll see what happens. But um, if if that plan A is finally finished with, it doesn't seem to me that there are that many other credible or realistic plan Bs on the table. Great. Should we let you go? Stephen, I'm going to go now. Thank you very much, guys. Well, we're going to carry on. Yeah, can I say one very quick thing? Because I know what it is as well. I can understand the superficial attractiveness of a plan B. But like Anand, I think this is simply unsustainable politically. I think the danger as well is that we're not really talking about Norway. However much the common marketers want to rebrand this with a nice label as Common Market 2.0, the actual commitment would be Norway plus a customs union. So it's not the freedoms of Norway. And even Norway would, I think, be quite difficult for the EU to swallow because they'd be, rightly be worried that our financial services sector is much bigger than Norway's and that we, they would need much tighter control of us to give us those sort of uh, market access. So I think we're looking at something much with many more obligations than Norway, cutting across many different areas. And when you start thinking about all those things and looking into the actual detail of what's involved, you need to make lots of different changes to all the different treaties. You need a protocol to the EEA, possibly a protocol to the EFTA treaty as well. It's not off the shelf, which is the very advantage it purports to have in the first place. And if you go back to what, uh, what was just being said about the waterfall diagram from Barnier and the different choices, this is all a bit of a strange discussion because we were told by the EU that we weren't discussing our future. We're only discussing the divorce. So none of this really actually makes that much difference to the divorce. And I find it strange that we have so many different MPs who only disagree about the future, not the divorce. And the divorce is what they're voting on. I mean, I'd add one thing to that, which I think gives some credence to what Henry was saying, which is just how appalled the Bank of England is by the prospect of us being inside a single market, taking rules on financial services with no voice. Uh, and I don't think that's feigned or made up or in any... Hardly bastion of leave, the Bank of England. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. But they see real dangers in being, you know, at the beck and call of the EU when it comes to financial services regulations, which we would be. Hmm. Interesting. Now, we sort of touched on it. Meaningful Vote 3 is coming. Um, Theresa May says her deal is the only way really to break this logjam and here she explains why. The options before us are the same as they always have been. We could leave, we could leave with the deal which this government has negotiated over the past two years. We could leave with the deal we have negotiated but subject to a second referendum. But that would risk no Brexit at all. So, Paul, yesterday a DUP MP told me that they weren't reversing to the, their opposition to this deal, but could it pass? It, it's got a chance. I mean, as Henry's a bit either optimistic, I think, but I think 
if you can see a scenario whereby she gets the numbers down so much, and if a lot of them publicly come out, this is the key, I think, that sense of momentum that both Anand and, and Stephen talked about. If you're a Labour MP, you want to see people publicly declare for meaningful vote three. So if over the weekend she gets some more big names coming over, if she gets Jacob Rees-Mogg, say, for example, tomorrow, so say, say he doesn't play hard to get, and he actually comes out over the weekend in the Sunday papers and says, right, I'm behind the Theresa May deal, you know, uh, reluctantly I'm going to do this. Then the ELG, more people come out of that, and you, you reduce to a rump the people who are against it. Then you've got Labour MPs who think, actually, yeah, the numbers are beginning to stack up, I might buy this. <coughs> then it comes in play, it becomes a really a real possibility. I, I still think, as you say, though, the DUP are a problem um, because I don't think they're going to be bought off by this Stormont um, suggestion, the, the Stormont lock as it's called, because they've so far shown no interest in that whatsoever and the government hasn't really played that card. Um, equally, the Attorney General, is he really going to adapt and clarify his legal advice and trash his own reputation? We all look so foolish. He might offer some sort of a clarification as, as was on the House the the floor of the house the other night, this whole idea about the Vienna Convention, but that's been trashed by Grieve and by Starmer again today. So, I don't know, the room for manoeuvre is very small. One thing that does actually count in their favour is that the DUP aren't homogenous 10 MPs, and no one really hmm. wants to talk about it. But basically there are two really hardcore Brexiteers, Sammy Wilson and Ian Paisley. The others, eight, actually, I suspect, are, are desperate to help the Prime Minister. And that's where it could all turn. And ultimately, the, the, the mechanics of that one group of 10 MPs is where this could all end up. I'll tell you what's a really interesting question that we should ask, actually, we should page Alan Wager and get him to do these numbers, is those MPs whose seats would be most endangered by a new English Nationalist Party. Because the European Parliament elections are crucial in a whole number of ways, I think, and it's not just that it'll be a horrible experience having them, but if they really serve to give Nigel Farage a new springboard... Uh, and of course, you know, think back to 88 in France, it's where the National Front came from, yeah, playing with proportional representation to screw Chirac. They got money and they got profile. It could be the ideal start for a new party. And I just wonder whether some MPs in seats that are vulnerable to that kind of party might now be thinking, well, look, this is a real danger if the extension goes over and beyond the European Parliament elections. There's a new political force in town. They might think that. I think the yeah. only drawback to that, to be honest, is that I think there's so little time for that party to get off the ground. Yeah. Um, and that I think Labour and the Tories would dominate this European election, Harry would. It is interesting though, I've been speaking to Labour MPs around Yorkshire, where we're from, and some of them, this is very high up in their... Yeah, they might not win elections. Yeah, this is very high up in, in their level of concerns when they're... When yeah, they're and, and that's why I think actually a lot of Labour MPs is in their interest to go for the general election. Because don't forget, there's another issue here, which is Labour deselection, and that's a whole other issue um, <laughs> we can talk about another time. But I think if I was Corbyn, I'd be—I mean, he is desperate for general election. But if you're a Labour MP in a leave seat, you might actually, in a strange way, want it. Why don't Tory MPs just back this deal now? The Brexiteers, you know, this dark talk of collapsing the government rather than because this deal. we've said this before, they're made of sterner stuff. You know, people like Bill Cash have a new sort of. Um, sort of, it's almost like Doctor Who when they regenerated. They've become regenerated into the form of people like Francois and Steve Baker. These younger MPs have not been around as much. They're just as dug in as someone like Bill Cash. And it's kind of the lure of martyrdom, isn't it? Well, partly that, um, but partly just because 
they are true believers. And to, you've got to respect that, to be honest. They have this very principled view, which is they, they think the EU is an anti-democratic, fundamentally anti-democratic institution when it comes to Britain. Because we, it is, to be frank, a shared sovereignty, pooled sovereignty. They fundamentally disagree with that. And that's a respectable position. Um, and they think they're reflecting the will of millions of people now. And they're not a fringe group on their own. You know, 17 million people did vote to leave. So you can see, if you're with them, why they're so passionate about it they're not acting as a group of uh, rogue MPs they're acting as tribunes of the people and you can see why they're doing it and that's I think the difficulty for the government and that's why a sensible government tries to reach out to these Labour MPs and tries to accept bank that rump you know we're not going to change their minds that's why a sensible powerful Prime Minister with authority even without a majority could possibly get this over the line I'm not sure she can but the reason why she has to do it on process rather than substance is if she softens, she loses more Tories. Yeah. I mean, that's the trade-off, isn't it? That's true. And it's, you know, it's an almost impossible position to be in. Right, let's do the quiz. Let's do the quiz. Let's do the quiz. Right. right, you might not have noticed, but we've had this Chancellor's Spring Statement this week. Um, but So we're going to have a quiz about Chancellors. Oh. Um, but it might not be the questions you're expecting. Oh. German so, Chancellors. Quite, since we've only yeah. got two guests, we'll, we'll just... University yeah. chancellors. You can join in. <laughs> <laughs> so, question number one. Chancellors are traditionally allowed to drink whatever they want when they're making their annual budget mm-hmm. speech in the Commons. So, I'm going to name some chancellors and you're going to guess what they drank in okay. the dispatch box. Ken Clark. Beer. I think it was beer. Whiskey. <sighs> Nigel Lawson. Claret. Oh, that's that's very declarative on Claret. <laughs> um, I don't know. I've not got an idea. Spritzer. Really? William Gladstone. Oh, that's got to be some of the hard stuff, hasn't it? I, I would have thought that would be... Brandy? Gin. Sherry and a beaten egg. Oh, sherry. Mm. You'd have given the point without the beaten egg, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah. Sure. And George Osborne. Water. It's mineral water. Correct. Yeah. Okay, well done. I think all wrong apart from George Osborne. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's Byron's bottle water. <laughs> I have a photo of him doing it. Um, question number two. Chancellors take part in a ceremony known as the Trial of the Picks. What is it? P-Y-X. P-Y-X? The Trial of the Picks. Ooh. Every Chancellor. Right. Maybe not every Chancellor, but Chancellors take part in this ceremony. Is this something to do with the Royal Family? Because the, the, the Treasury always has this... So they have royal titles, don't they? I mean, the Whips have Treasury and royal titles. So maybe it's something about something they do in, in Buckingham Palace? Do they do this in Buckingham Palace when they become Chancellor? It's sort of related to the Royal Family, but it's not something that happens in Buckingham Palace. It's when they become Privy Councillors? Do you want a clue? Go on. It happens, this trial of the picks happens in Goldsmiths Hall. I'm just watching you in awe. You keep going, seriously. I can't believe it. Goldsmiths Hall. You keep going, man. Ah! Is this when they... No, it's not when they deliver a mentioner speech, is it? No, where have been. John, the answer. It's, it's a procedure to ensure newly minted coins conform to the required standards. And it's actually, it's an actual trial presided over by a judge and a jury of metal experts Wow! And test the coins. And the picks is a, is a boxwood chest in which the coins are placed. And every Chancellor does that? Yeah, I learned that this morning. Yeah. That's amazing. Blimey. Yeah, there you go. Learn something new every day. Final question. Um, no, it's so hard to find Phil Hammond. 
<laughs> what is the Chancellor's summer residence? Uh, which Chancellor refused to use it, and who is it allocated to instead? Isn't it Dorney Wood? Yes. And who refused? Gordon, Gordon refused, Brown. and who did he give it to? John Prescott. Yeah, correct. Well done, Paul. Hey. You got one right. Pulled out well, of the bag. That's all we've got time for. Uh, we're leaving you with Tory Brexiteer Mark Francois explaining in an interview with Sky News' Beth Rigby that you cannot vote for Theresa May's Brexit deal because he once served in the Territorial Army. I just see, it just seems to me that tonight your options are narrowing, as is the Prime Minister's, um, and you're still ploughing on. I just don't understand why you don't just take her deal and bank the win. I think I've tried to explain it, it because it's not a win, it's a lose. I'm not going to bank a lose. I was in the army, I wasn't trained to lose. Okay. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.